1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien, Goldsmiths University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Nick Crossley from the University of Manchester about his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion, The Punk and Post-Punk Worlds of Manchester, London, Liverpool and Sheffield, 1975-80. to Okay, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Nick Crossley, um, who works in the Sociology Department at the University of Manchester. About his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion, The Punk and Post-Punk Worlds of Manchester, London, Liverpool and Sheffield, 1975-80. to Hello. Hi. So, um, to start off with this, I really enjoyed this, partially because um, it's a really good, um, solid, theoretically grounded bit of sociology, but also it's about punk and it's dead interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a real pleasure to read. And I wonder, actually, um, before we get into it, if you could tell the listeners a bit about the process that brought you to write this book. So a bit about your academic background and, and why you've ended up applying social network analysis to the book.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, thanks very much. I'm glad that you you enjoyed it. Um, uh, yeah, so so the background to it, I had, um, I've done a lot of work on social movement. Um so looking at different protest groups and, and how they form and mobilize. And um and really as I suppose partly as a consequence of that I started to get interested in network analysis. Um and 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 I and I think I, I reached a point where the social movements were quite difficult, quite it was quite difficult to get information about um uh, about the social movements involved. These the social networks are involved in many kinds of, of social movements. Um, and I think in, in the process of working through that, I began to think about what I already knew about punk um, and the networks involved in, um, in in that. And I think, actually, I think part of it was as well was to do with teaching. I wanted some easy-ish sorts of examples to of social networks to work with, and I kind of thought, well, maybe the social movements are difficult to get hold of, but maybe thinking about punk would be easier. So I started to put a network together just on the basis of because I'd been a huge punk fan, yeah, yeah. As, as a kid. and and started to put the network together on that basis. Then I started Googling a few people, and it turned out that there was even more of a network than I'd imagined that that there was on the basis of what I I remembered. Um, And then I think I I started to think, well, maybe I could get a paper out of this. Uh, Maybe there's enough there. And and in particular, thinking about the parallels between social movements and, and what I was thinking of at the time as musical movements. Um, and, and starting to sort of think, well, maybe the arguments that say there has to be a network in order for a social movement to form or a protest to happen, it applies in the case of music as well. Maybe you don't get things like punk unless there's already some kind of pre-existing network there. Um, and that—that that was really the the strand of thought I think that, uh, that 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 took me that started me off on on the whole process that,
1: that eventually five or six years later led to me, starting to write the book. I mean, it's funny in a way that uh, punk, and maybe to a lesser extent, post-punk, is stuff that um, in contemporary culture we just assume we understand. Uh, But one of the things the book does is intervenes in a way that says what you think you know about punk, you probably don't. So I wonder if you could say what punk is, perhaps a little bit about what post-punk is, and how the book challenges expectations around the kind of the dominant stories of punk.
0: Right. Uh, well, what th- those questions,
1: what what it is,
0: are I think are are very very difficult, and I'm not sure that I have I've got a, a, a perfect answer to that. Um, because because I suppose questions about what it is belong to the world of punk itself, and will always be argued about, so, uh, so so as I was looking at the, the the London punks, I was looking at the networks that formed around the Sex Pistols, you see lots of debates there with the older pub rockers, Dr. Feelgood, Ian Jury, um, and people who are saying, well, we were doing it before you were doing it, we're the original punks, and then there's all the debates about what was happening in the United States as well, uh, around CBGB, where um, television, Patti Smith, the Ramones, and these kinds of groups were all starting to form, and uh, indeed the earlier waves um, of uh, of the Stooges and the MC5 and, and these other kinds of things. And so, um, so, so in, in some senses, I I daren't answer the question what is punk yeah. because whatever answer I came up with would would undoubtedly be wrong in the view of of lots of people but i think i i just became interested in in the network that involved the the london punk groups initially that i'd grown up loving so the sex pistols the clash the banshees the damned the slits um, Chelsea, Generation X, that those those bands, and I think that that was where I'd started with the with the network. I knew that Bernie Rhodes and Malcolm McLaren, the managers of the Sex Pistols and, and the Clash respectively, knew one another, and so that that was that was kind of where I started. And I suppose that that for me, um, that that particular world, as I call it, or, or that particular movement was what it was that I wanted to uh, to focus upon, and I think it was that cluster of bands and the people involved there who generated all the excitement that I got swept up in and, and that was that meant so much to me so so i think and I think that that was that was a, a a kind of a, a locus of interaction and activity and excitement. And and I call that punk. And, I, you know, I'm <laughs> kind of prepared to accept that, you know, it might just be one version of it or, or whatever else. But but that was it for, for me. Um, and then I think uh, fr- from that hive of activity in London, you, you get a, a diffusion outwards to mainly to other cities uh, I- initially and perhaps initially to uh, to, to Manchester because some early links that were formed between uh, the, uh, between London and, and Manchester but also to places like uh, Liverpool and to um, and to Sheffield and you get a a process a very very similar process to the one that I observed in London happening in Liverpool in Manchester and Sheffield and in lots of other uh, towns and cities um, in in the uk but um, but but what happens and I, actually I was really struck when I was looking through the archives of just just about how how obvious and apparent this this becomes is that within the space of six to twelve months of of punk having really gone public and 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 become something that lots of people knew about uh, a lot of the instigators the the early the people who'd been involved early on were starting to get bored of it and and were starting to say um we don't we just we don't want to just simply reproduce this this format of you know whatever i mean i think i i think sometimes we we tend to Um, we we, we tend to assume that punk music was more simple than it was and, you know, we either celebrate that or we condemn it. Uh, But nevertheless, that that format was something that people began to become irritated about and wanted to move away from. And perhaps punk itself was becoming uniform in the sense that a a movement which had initially, or a world which had initially been centred upon um, upon uh, people experimenting and doing their own things and trying out all sorts of different styles had, had become centered upon bondage trousers and uh, jack boots and leather jackets and, that, and a very sort of uh, stereotyped uh, style and view. And so you start to get people um, who who are still inspired by the DIY ethos of punk. They're still inspired by the idea that you can and should do it yourself um, but but what they want to do, the style of music that they want to to, to work with, is is different. Um, and so, and, and interestingly, it, it's although a lot don't want to overgeneralise too much, but you get different styles developing in different cities. I mean, so Liverpool is is always, I think, thought of as a as the home of psychedelic music or neo psychedelic music. And and, cert- and and whilst there was lo- there were loads of things going on in Liverpool loads of people doing different sorts of things. There certainly was that, that hub of, of of bands working around a loosely psychedelic theme like On the Bunny Man, Teardrop Explodes, Wah. And, and I guess that was related to some extent to to the central importance of probe records and the interests of the people who, who worked there. In in Sheffield by contrast you had this real focus on electronic music that was related to Cabaret Voltaire the Human League, uh, Clock de Bar, and, and so on. Um, and, and so you had these distinctive sounds emerging in different cities, but they were all in some senses post-punk because they were all about taking the um, the DIY ethos of punk, taking the idea of, yeah, we're going to do it for ourselves and we're going to enjoy it, um, but, uh, but, but taking it off in different directions. And I think also what you had in there were people who perhaps were never that persuaded by the punk style itself. I think this is probably true in Sheffield with some of the electronic pioneers. They were never completely um, uh, persuaded of, of of the punk bands and punk styles, but they loved the idea that you could do it yourself, and they wanted to do that with their own sort of chosen forms of music. So, so I, I mean, and that, that really was what post-punk was, I think. Uh, and there was also, but there was also a network. So there was lots of movement between Liverpool and Manchester, and 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 Sheffield and Manchester. I think geographically, Manchester was just in the middle. So the two tended to to converge um, uh, around there. Um, and that that became even true with the with the independent record labels as well. That you started to get these intercity or or translocal networks forming that that gave this diverse range of activities, some kind of connectedness
1: and, and cohesion. I mean, it, it's funny anyway, a way, because over the course of that, um, that explanation, you're already gesturing towards the more technical aspects of sociological analysis there in the book, particularly around social network analysis, Yeah, but also some of the um, theoretical work you do around trying to establish what it is that, what it is exactly that you're studying. So, What's the idea of a of a musical world, um, and I think that is tied up with with the kind of the boundary making around punk. And it's yeah. not a scene; um, it, it's something that's uh, that's different from a subculture.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is uh, this is perhaps the controversial bit in the sense that this is the bit that some people like and other people don't like. Uh, I, I mean, I think the. The, the idea that there are a number of, of different concepts, as you just said, that, that are on offer for thinking about the collectives that are involved in, in music making. The one that has been predominant in British sociology, um, or, or was predominant for many years, is the idea of subculture. Um, and then, the, like you so said, there's the idea of scene, there's Bourdieu's idea of field, and, um, and there's this idea of, of world. Uh, and, and I suspect you could probably go with any one I mean, if, if you had a preference for any one of them, you could make a case for it, you could go with it. But I was particularly... Um, I was particularly impressed with the work of Howard Becker and Howard Becker's um, ideas on art worlds. Uh, and it seemed to me that um, it seemed to me that, that Becker offered a, um, a coherent set of interrelated concepts which allowed you to think about Music or, or any kind of art, in fact, but music as collective action, it encouraged you to look at the ways in which um, people cooperated and, and also sometimes competed and conflicted uh, with one another in the process of art, and which, which um, emphasized that art was always a co creation it always involved the different input of of these people. Playing different uh, di- different roles, um, and and although Becker's, I mean, although Becker's original formulation isn't perfect, it it was the one that really captured me, the one that inspired me, and and it seemed to me that it was, for example, it was a, it was a cohesive set of theoretical ideas, but it wasn't. Um, It wasn't closed in in, in the way that sometimes Bourdieu's idea of fields can be. It seemed to invite you to push off in different kinds of directions. It wasn't quite as prescriptive, I don't think, as as Bourdieu's idea of fields was. But then there's still some sort of cohesion to it, where, in contrast, say to the concept of scene, which um, I think there are just lots of different versions of, and, and those different versions of it, conflict with one another, so it doesn't, whilst any one version of scene might be coherent, um, people, people understand very different things by the word scene if you use it, and so that, that seemed to, to perhaps be problematic. And I suppose the, the contrast really with um, subculture was that the idea of subculture seemed to be very much focused on audiences alone. Um, and, and yet, the notion of worlds seemed to include artists and audiences and all the various support personnel that are necessary for for music to happen so um, like I say, I mean any, any, any advocate of any of the other concepts would probably do a similar job of explaining why that is is yeah, but yeah. but that's that 's why i I opted for this idea of worlds, and also interestingly, Becca puts quite an emphasis upon networks. Um, And that uh, that that resonated with where I'd come into to the idea of of networks. Um, And and it seemed, although he didn't develop it in a technical way via social network analysis, it seemed to me that he kind of invited you to do that. That was that was one of the uh, that was part of the potential of this notion was that you could take that element of worlds and do something more with it by social network analysis. And I think, sorry, just, just yeah. the one other thing was, uh, that took me was Becker's idea of art as collective action, which then resonated with my earlier interest as a social movement scholar. Um, and so there was this kind of sense of, well, yeah, you, if you're thinking of Becker's was the concept which, which resonated most closely with my sense that the uprising that was punk was sociologically very similar to the uprising that was May 68 or the uprising that was
1: the formation of the environmental movement. I mean, social network analysis is obviously the other kind of major thing going on in the book. Um, yeah. And I'd be interested to hear, you know, you maybe talk through that or give a, a brief explanation about it. But one of the things I was very struck by was the book is not doing social network analysis of punk because it's something that you know, would be technically interesting but would not destabilise the literature or bring anything new. Yeah. The book is using social network analysis to kind of take on existing explanations right. of yeah, punk. Yeah. So I wonder if you could sort of talk through what an SNA is in a way that kind of makes it clear why doing a social network analysis is different to, say, Explaining punk as you know the frustrations of contemporary in the seventies British masculinity, or Malcolm McLaren's fashion label, or, or these yeah. other structural or individualist explanations that are already out there.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, well, I'll start. I'll start with the other explanations then. So, so there's a, there, there are a few fairly standard explanations of punk. I mean, I guess coming from the the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies punk is seen as uh, as an expression of um the, the alienation of of working class youth um it, it's a it's a response to uh, it's a response to that or um another version of that is the idea that punk was a response to the economic crisis of um of the mid 19 of the mid 1970s or again an, another sort of explanation along those lines was was the idea that it, it was it was frustration at what rock and pop music had become in the mid nineteen seventies. So you've got a generation of people who grow up with rock and roll, then they move through the Mersey Beat, they get the the, the kind of uh, they've got they grow up with Motown, and then they get in the mid nineteen seventies, and they've got Mud and Sweet, <laughs> uh, and it's kind of you know. I mean, I think that many of them found David Bowie really exciting, but glam rock had almost become a parody of itself by the mid-1970s. And then on the other side, you've got, um, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and these very grandiose um, uh, pretensions. uh, And and so punk is seen as a a response to the frustration that that caused. And the problem with that sort of explanation, any of those explanations for me, and really here I'm just nicking a. Critique that's used in social movement studies very often is that is, is that that frustration was was ubiquitous. I mean, and, and, I, and indeed, I found it. I found examples of it in uh, Manchester, in in Liverpool. You, you, there's clearly people were frustrated. They were frustrated economically and politically. They were frustrated about music. Young uh, working class people were alienated, but but the problem was that. That, that was happening everywhere. Yeah. Punk didn't happen everywhere. Yeah. Punk happened in very specific kinds yeah. of places, um, and so uh, and, and so I, I wanted to know well why or how did it happen in the very specific places that it did? And I, I suppose the I suppose it's more of a how than a why because I think there's an element of chance in it. I think it could have happened first in Liverpool. I mean you. Uh, I don't know I should go how much detail I should go into about this, but you look at what was happening in Liverpool with with the band Deaf School um, in the early nineteen seventies, and they were starting to make many of the same noises, you no know, <laughs> pun intended, in Liverpool that, that would later lead to something happening in in London. So yeah. it could have happened in in. Um, in Liverpool, lots of grumbling in Manchester about the the labels and the selling out of the... So it could have happened in Manchester, but but it happened first in, in London. And so I wanted to know, well, what was the process? How did it happen? And that starts then, I think, to focus you more upon the the set of people who were involved and the, the kind of what social movement theorists have called the micro-mobilization processes. How did it just come about that these people started doing what they were doing? Um, and, and, and in order to answer that question, I then came back to this idea of network and, and you know, I, I sort of thought, well, perhaps what you have in Manchester and in Liverpool is a set of people with very similar sentiments to the people in London, but they're not connected to one another. So their frustrations are, um, and they're not connected to to people who might be in a position to, to do something with this. Um, uh, and, and, and what the difference in London was that these the, these different people with these same interests began to converge and began to form a network and my argument was, and, and is, that it was the, uh, the the network which enabled the collective action to happen. When people started to connect with one another, they began to share resources, they began to influence one another, they began to compete with one another, um, they began to... Uh, to, to share ideas, and it was through the, those processes of interaction that something began to take shape that, that what we later recognized as um, as punk began to to take shape and so um, and but in order to make that case persuasively i i, I couldn 't just offer the impression that well yeah, it looks to me like um, all the people in London knew one another and were interacting yeah. with one another and all the people in Manchester weren 't so that was really I suppose where social network analysis, which I knew from my social movement research uh, came into um, came into action because social network analysis was a very precise way of um, a, a very precise way of mapping the networks and saying who is interacting with whom in insignificant and in important ways and indeed to some extent who even knows uh, whom and so i um, and, and so, I, so i set about that was when i set about going more in a more systematic way through the archives and just looking at who the key players were in manchester and, and london and trying to work out at what point they they knew one another, and at what point they began to interact with one another, and, and the difference really between Manchester and London was that networks had begun to take shape in London um, much earlier than than they did in, in Manchester. So there were eventually there were networks in both cities, but it was in, it, it was the process of network formation which happened earlier in London, and which seems to have been the basis upon which punk. Um, on which punk happened, and, but the network was also um, a way of combating what you also referred to in the question: the overly individualistic explanations of, of punk that, that we um, that, that we get. Uh, so, um, so, so in particular, John Lydon or Johnny Rotten um, and Malcolm McLaren are sometimes identified as as the people who made punk, and it was all down to whichever one of the two you prefer, or sometimes perhaps both. Um, and, and it seems to me, firstly, the art world's idea, Becca's art world's idea, is, um, is is challenging that. Part of the reason for saying art is collective action is to get away from the idea that art is reducible to the genius or charisma of of any particular single person. Um uh, but also the, the network analysis was a way of trying to begin to explore that. Um because for, for me, McLaren and Johnny Rotten were hugely important and, and and I have no doubt that uh that the particular shape that Punk took was um was influenced to a huge extent by by each of them. But it but it couldn't have happened unless they were part of a network uh, it couldn't have happened unless they had connections to other people who um who were in, impressed by what they did who were sympathetic to um uh, to to what they did and clearly that wasn't going to be everybody um you know i mean lots of people were were distinctly underwhelmed by the Sex Pistols and McLaren or horrified by them. But when you had a network of people who had begun to share particular kind of sentiments and then you had people in that uh, network who were good organisers or who were charismatic, at least charismatic to the other people in the network, um, then then those people were able to be operators or were able to steer... And uh, lead a movement in in the way in the way that they did, but it can't be reducible to the individual. It's got to be the individual as a player within
1: a wider network. I mean, you sort of uh, talked about this a, a little bit already, but I wonder if you could uh, illustrate this by talking through, um, which is essentially chapters four uh, through six, talking through the story of punk's emergence in London. Yeah. Right, Uh,
0: so I, I think it it, uh, it's a long story. I know, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's a complicated story. But um, I suppose the the starting point for me is Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's shop, um, which had various different names at different times, but. Sex uh, is the the I suppose the name that it had for most of the early formation of punk um, on on the Kings Road, and um, McLaren had a and, and Westwood had originally sold um, Teddy Boy clothes, um, and they uh, and and then later on had gone to I think borrowing ideas from other people had decided that the. Um, the trappings of sexual fetishism were might be a basis for provocative everyday clothes and um, uh, clothes that, that people might might wear out out on the streets and so it's where the idea of the bondage trousers and the bum flaps and all these various kinds of things uh, comes from and I think that I mean firstly, McLaren himself had an interesting network. Way before the start of punk, he um, uh, he had he, he had connections to Jamie Reed who was a, a Situationist um, artist. Um, he he had rock music connections to some extent because he'd made contact with the New York Dolls in the early 1970s, and he supplied some of their clothes. Um, he had links with. And this is Test whether I can remember people's names. Uh, he had uh, links with um, uh, the guy, the guy who was in the Sharks, um, who was uh, Chris Bedding, um, who who had who had played with Roy Harper and various other kinds of. of uh, um, of people so so there were, there was this interesting network of artists, businessmen connected to the shop, but also the shop became a place where young people who were interested in um, subcultural fashions and slightly more out there uh, clothes came to buy their clothes because even in London, I think there were very few places. Where you could go even for example, and buy brothel creepers or, or the kind of fairly um, fairly standard but but challenging um uh clothes and, and so mclaren 's shop, along with a, one or two others um, uh, began to attract lots of um of, of young people, and some of these young people were interested in forming bands and the, the and um, the, the, the obvious example of that is Steve Jones and Paul Cook, um, who would later be, be the guitarist and the, the drummer with the Sex Pistols. And they used to hang around McLaren's shop. And as the story goes, they used to try and nick things from McLaren's shop. Um, but but also they um, that they would work at the shop. McLaren would get Steve Jones doing our jobs for him and working around and actually interestingly at that time, Chrissy Hind, who um, was of course later in the pretenders was working at um, at, at mclaren 's shop and uh, and Steve Jones and Paul Cook approached McLaren and said, "Would he manage their band and My impression at, at this time is that uh, M- McLaren said yes. But um, uh, but McLaren wasn't that interested in music at this particular point in time. He'd been disenchanted um, by the changes in music, really since rock and roll. He'd been a big fan of um, of, of Eddie Cochran um, and and that that whole sort of early um, the, the 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 early Billy Fury, the whole early rock and roll scene. Um, and, and he thought that music had gone to pieces pretty much after rock and roll uh, so 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 he wasn't he wasn 't that that interested, but he said he would do it um, and uh, and he also put Steve Jones and Paul Cook in contact with um, uh, w- with Glenn Matlock, uh, who would be the bassist of the sex pistols, and Matlock was based at one of the art colleges just just down the road from from the shop. Um, and uh, and 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 he um, he became that he got into contact with them, and so a band uh, began to to take shape, but not a band that uh, that McLaren was necessarily all that or um, all that interested in, and that the band tried out different uh, vocalists at, at different times. But this band also became. Um, also became a focus of interest for some of McLaren's other associates within and connected to to the shop, and in particular, I think during um, uh, was it early early 1975, or at some point at some point in 1975, um, the the New York Dolls were apparently in their death throes. They they were kind of. Uh, they were struggling as, um, as a band. And the one band that McLaren did still like were the New York Dolls. He thought they were sort of provocative and challenging and, and they did what rock and roll was supposed to do, which was terrify parents and, <laughs> and, and, and sort of be outrageous. Uh, so McLaren took, in, took it upon himself to go over to the States to try to help the New York Dolls out and, and it was a disastrous attempt. By all accounts, um, he had them dressing up with um, hammer, and, uh, hammer and sickle type designs, which didn't go down <laughs> no, though, not um, enough yeah. in, in the states. And in effect, his intervention seems to have just, you know, killed them off completely. But whilst he was away, um, Bernie Rhodes. Um, who, who was his, his friend and, and worked on t-shirts and things with him um, and Jamie Reed, who was the kind of situationist artist had been meeting up with the band and, and they'd been sort of talking about what they should do and uh and, and Rhodes was a bit of a provocateur as well. he wanted them to do controversial and challenging things and uh and, and Jamie Reed had had the interest in situationism and he was talking to the band and trying to and they were, these guys i think were trying to impose their designs upon upon the band um a little bit and I think whilst mclaren was in um w- was in the states, he came across what was happening at CBGB, um, and so he started to see these exciting bands. I think in particular, television, he was, he was very impressed with in Richard Hell. Um, and by all accounts, Richard Hell had clothes held together by safety pins, spiky hair, and, um, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and, um, and, and so when McLaren came back, he was more interested in music and he decided that he wanted to do something with, um, with his band. And part of what he wanted to do was, was to bring uh, either Johnny Thunders or Richard Hell over from the States and have them in, in his band, uh, which neither of them wanted to do. But, but I think in, in this process, um, Rhodes, Bernie Rhodes was pushed out again uh, a little bit uh, sparking a bit more competition, I think, between Bernie Rhodes and Malcolm McLaren. If, if McLaren had his band, Rhodes wanted to have his band. Um, and then, in, in, a, in an interesting, um, in, in an interesting link, uh, um, uh, Bernie Rhodes went to see the, the Liverpool band Deaf School, um, where he met up with Mick Jones um, and with Tony James, who were looking to put together a band, um, and, and they started talking, and, and Rhodes took it upon himself to manage uh, their band, who originally were called London SS. Um, but obviously Mick Jones would eventually become The Clash, Tony James would eventually become Chelsea and Generation X, and Brian James would, came into that fold Fairly, fairly early on and his band would be the Damned. so what you're starting to get is you're starting to get all these these uh, would be musicians who are linking up with this infrastructure around McLaren's shop um, and and, and, and I suppose that, that's the start of a process of network formation. I mean, it would be, I, I, you know, I won't go into length about how everybody
1: else all started to come into the network. Yeah, but then, and it, one of the things you do in Chapter 5 is, is illustrate how, you know, we can see distinct blocks in, yes. in the world of London Punk that yeah. are interrelated with each other, some of which are, um, you know, helping each other out, some of which are directly in competition, some of which are, you know, essentially the support bands, the, yes. these yeah. kind of things. How does punk go national? Uh, which is what one of the kind of the crucial yeah. uh, moments in the book that we cross over from what is essentially a kind of uh, a music world in London yeah. to become uh, a national phenomenon that allows you to draw comparisons between London, Sheffield, Manchester, yeah. and Liverpool. So how does punk go national? It it starts with um,
0: it. It it starts, I think, with one of the reviews that uh I just gonna struggle to get the details right here. <laughs> um a, a review that, that Neil Spencer wrote in one of the uh weekly music magazines and um the Sex Pistols had supported um oh god now, let me just think of who they supported. Huh. <laughs> It, it's it's gone. Um, oh, don't, don't yeah, yeah. Don't. Okay. So, so, so the, the, the Sex Pistols had played a support um, um, a support slot um, at the Marquee in London, and when it got written up, really the review was about the Sex Pistols. It it wasn't about the the band who. Who they had been supporting, and um, and famously in that review, Steve Jones had said, "We're not into music; we're into chaos." Um, and, and of course, you've got these musos all over the country who religiously flick through the weekly music music mags looking for for, for anything of interest, and that 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 review. Um, seems to have sparked a huge amount of, well, I say a huge amount of interest. It's probably a tiny group of musos spread all around the, the country. But when they all saw it, they all got excited. So you get... Um, t v Smith and gay advert in uh, they, they were in Devon, I think um, they read it and, and eventually decide actually to move to London on that basis because there 's obviously something exciting happening in London. but in Manchester um, you get uh, um, Pete Shelley and Howard Devoto, as they would later be known uh, they they read this review. And uh, they think, right, we've just got to go to London. We've got to see this band. They borrow a car and they just head down to London um, to to see the Sex Pistols. They meet the Sex Pistols. They are massively impressed. They invite the Sex Pistols to come back and play in Manchester too very early out of London gigs for the Sex Pistols and widely celebrated ones. And you get other people who've read this review, Neil Spencer's review, who then decide to come and see the Sex Pistols in Manchester because, well, I think it's Martin Brammer, who was later in, in the fall, says it said that they played Stooges songs and we, they were huge Stooges fans. So, But also it was these skinheads apparently playing because they everybody had, long hair of course at the time and but the sex pistols didn't they had short hair so what on earth it was an outrage because skinheads were playing the stooges and so they they, some of them just came along because they thought they were going to heckle um (laughs) but then they get to this gig and and they're kind of wiped out so so you 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 have this there's this sort of slow process through the music Mm -hmm. press whereby people are starting to find out about it and Trying to find out more and do things, but then off, on the first of December, nineteen 1970, uh, seventy-six, um, the the Sex Pistols get to do a uh, get to do an interview on local television in um, in in London, and it wasn't actually their first their first television appearance. Actually, had been on a northwest-based program that tony wilson um uh did uh, so it goes and actually they were quite controversial on that program because jordan uh who was one of the women that worked in sex um had a swastika armband on she looked like a sort of she looked like a Nazi. um and the sex pistols had gone had gone mad on the stage anyway and so they they could have Generated a huge amount of, of controversy at that point, but but it was really this this interview that they did on um, London Weekend Television with with Bill Grundy that that caused the that that, that was the the spark for for punk going national, because um, the uh, as far as I can tell, the host was drunk. The Sex <laughs> Pistols had been in the green room all day, and they were drunk, um, and. Uh, I w- well, you, you could you could tell the story about what happened in slightly different ways, but it seems that uh, Bill Grundy, the interviewer, had started to flirt a little bit with Susie, um, of Susie and the Banshees fame, who was one of the, the Sex Pistols kind of inner in circle of fans at the time. Um, and this this provoked one of the sex pistols, Steve Jones, I think, to to call him a dirty something or, or other, um, and uh, and then uh, Grundy retaliates and says, you know, oh, you know, come on, say something controversial, say something, uh, say something naughty, which they then go on and do, <laughs> um, and uh, and all of this is on tea time television, um, and, and like I say, it's only local. Uh, London television, but the next morning in the press, the national press start to run with this, and you get some of the celebrated phrases associated with with punk on the headlines. That next, you know, the filth and the fury, uh, filthy lucre—they're all headlines from from that next um, that that next morning. And there's a huge moral panic generated around punk. Uh, the, the the Sex Pistols, I think, along with the Clash. And the Dand um, had been supposed to be going on a national tour shortly after this point in time. When probably they still would only have appealed to a small number of people. They'd have very much been a niche, um, a niche act. Um, but they, they had something like about I think it was twenty six or so gigs lined up um, around the country. But but this the, these newspaper headlines after the Bill Grundy interview provoke a moral panic, um, and councils start s- s- start intervening to prevent the gigs, um, and I think in the end the the the, the Anarchy tour, as it was called, um, only actually played four different places uh, out of the 26 or so that it was supposed to have played. Well, the, the Sex Pistols had a record contract at that point in time with EMI, um, but the, the workers at the record-pressing plant refused to, to press it originally because they were horrified at what had happened, and eventually EMI decided to pull out. So the, the EMI version of Anarchy in the UK became a collector's item because EMI decided they didn't want any do with it, all of which could have looked pretty bleak for punk, um, the censors were coming down, there were attempts by all kinds of do-gooders to repress this and stop um, uh, stop the, the nation's youth from, from being corrupted, um, but of course, as any sociologist would have told them, if you try and stop people in that way, you make it hugely exciting and sexy to, to young people um, who many of whom probably wouldn't have bothered with the Sex Pistols if it hadn't have been for this huge furore that, that was created, um, and that really was punk going national. That was the point at which, um, uh, 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 at which every sort of teenage every self-respecting teenager in the land. Discovered punk and decided that this is what they wanted to to be, and what they wanted to do. Bands started to punk nights started to take off in different towns and cities. Bands started to form, and and, and really the the whole thing got going as a as, as a consequence of that. You know, there had been, like I say, the earlier precursors like um, Pete Shelley and Howard Devoto, who formed Buzzcocks. Um, But really, I think the going national was was as a consequence of Bill Grundy and the the moral
1: panic. The the rest of the book is um, devoted to these other cities and the evolution of a different kind of music as well. Um, I wonder, um, just uh, to bring the discussion to a close, whether you could um, maybe use Sheffield as the example to talk about um, how Sheffield was similar and how it was different to London. And how, particularly musically, yeah. um, the social network analysis shows us um, how a different kind of music emerges in Sheffield.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, in some sense, t- in some senses, I'm, I'm not sure it's the um, Sheffield is the is the is the odd one in the pack yeah. in some ways because I think um, in Liverpool and Manchester you had great enthusiasm for punk. Yeah. And then you had innovators who, at a fairly early stage, decided that punk had had its moment and it was time to move on and do something different. Sheffield, although there was a thriving punk scene in Sheffield and it has been written up quite well, a lot of the movers and shakers in Sheffield were... People who hadn't weren't as impressed by punk or, or as influenced, I don't think, um, by by punk, um, and and seem to have been um, interested in, uh, in 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 electronic music. Um, and I think Cabaret Voltaire, uh, the the three members of, of Cabaret Voltaire. Had been hugely influential in in that. I think I think actually they, as much as anything, had been interested in just in electronics and in making weird noises. And they, they were probably um, they, they were but but they amongst the other things they were interested in film scores. So I think they had been really um, uh, really attracted by the um, the, the Clockwork Orange uh, film score, which was done by. Um, well, it was Walter Carlos, I think, who eventually became Wendy, Wendy yeah. Carlos, um, and and so they were a lot of the early Cabaret Voltaire stuff was just exploring sort of soundscapes, um, and I guess they'd been influenced by Roxy Music and Brian Eno, and and these other kinds of things as well, but but also particularly crowd rock and and the uh, the, the uh, uh, craft work but i think that what what punk did was it, it it created this sense of possibility this sense that you can do things and this sense that you should do things and and it 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 sort of mobilized people to begin to organize musical events regular kinds of musical events including some at the that what was called the navsac at the um at, at the university um, and, and really, those, those sorts of events attracted both the electronic music pioneers and, and the punks. They were probably organised for the punks, but the electronic music pioneers began to drift towards them as well. And I think in that process, um, the networks began to form in much the way that networks had begun to form around Sex Pistols gigs and around Malcolm McLaren's shop um in uh in in london and it was with the formation of of those networks that again you had the i suppose what some people might call the social capital that allowed cultural events and cultural innovations to um to 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 be organized to get a hold and uh, for for a thriving music world to to begin to take place but but you also find I mean again Sheffield was unusual in having perhaps fewer dedicated support personnel Um, so uh, you, you know if you look in if you look in Liverpool and you look in Manchester you you find a Reasonably largeish bunch of slightly older men who are quite happy to take on the role of managing, who want to be movers and shakers. They don't necessarily want to play in bands themselves, but they they do want to help and facilitate young musicians to um, to, to 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 do their own thing. And that was very similar, I think, to what McLaren and his cronies around Sex were were doing. Sheffield is slightly different um, in that there aren't quite as many of those people, Uh, but but there certainly are some. There's this very enigmatic character called Marcus Featherby um, in in Sheffield, who um, I mean he's mysterious because apparently um, there's he changed his name upon coming to Sheffield, and nobody quite knows who he was before he was Marcus Featherby, and then he left. Um, under, under a bit of a cloud and mystery and apparently changed his name again. So so it's this, I mean, God knows why. It might just have been a strange guy that likes to change his name every now and then, I don't know. But, but he was a big organiser and he managed quite a few of the different bands. He organised various um, uh, labels at one point or another that put out music by Sheffield bands as well as by... Uh, bands from further afield, and he did the another thing that crops up fairly commonly, certainly in Manchester and Liverpool and Sheffield, is the the, the local area compilation album. So you get these compilations that showcase local talent, and Marcus Featherby did that for, for Sheffield. Um, uh, so so you've got you've got these movers and shakers, although like I say, fewer of them in Sheffield, who begin to um, take on the role of. Um, organiser and enabling young bands to have spaces to play in and audiences to come and see them but I think in Sheffield interestingly some of the bands do that themselves so I got the impression certainly from the archive that the, the Cabaret Voltaire had played a hugely facilitative role Um, I mean they were a huge influence on the Sheffield bands because I think for a time they were the interesting Sheffield band um, and lots of other Sheffield musicians went along to see them and were influenced by them but Cabaret Voltaire had a um, Cabaret Voltaire had a studio uh, the Western Works out in one of the old disused industrial buildings um, and they let lots of the other bands go in there and, use, and, and record sessions and, and do uh, various kinds of things like that. So they were quite, They were, although they were probably the key band in the city, they were also the key organisers and support personnel think, for other people. But actually, another thing I should mention about Sheffield was um, this council-run project, uh, which had been an effort, I think, on behalf of the council to... Um, Uh, to, to help young people become involved in, in the arts and it had an odd name, it was Meat Whistle. It was called, which is obviously a a kind of... A, a, a strange sexual um reference, which the council don 't seem to have picked up on, and, and there are there, there are stories about this um, meat whistle being organized by these hippies who would walk around with no shoe I and mean, it doesn 't sound like the kind of thing that a council would do but then, having said that, of course Sheffield in the 1970s was was known as the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire, and it had a very different kind of political take uh, to to much of the rest of, of, of the country. And it was quite an innovative and, and, and different place politically. Sheffield famously had um, ridiculously cheap bus fares um, and things because the council had these socialist ideas that, that they put into the city. Uh, but I still think they wouldn't have approved of Meat Whistle thinking <laughs> what was going on there. Um, and, and Meat Whistle was a place where many of um, of the people who went on to be part of those electronic um, bands uh, initially met. So uh, several, uh, Ian Craig Marsh and Martin Ware of the Human League went there along with um, Glenn Gregory, who they'd originally wanted to be the lead singer for the Human League, but later joined them in Heaven 17, um you had um you had people from the early punk bands, uh, from there was a band called 2.3, who were probably the first Sheffield punk band. He he was Paul Bower it was, he was involved in Meat Whistle and he was also um the person who who who, who ran Sheffield's first punk zine, Gun Rubber. Um so so, so I mean there, there were lots of them and they they interestingly formed that they, they formed a band it, or some of them, some, it wasn't Human League people, there was some, some of those early people involved in Meat Whistle formed a band called Musical Vomit, um, which kind of sounds punk, it sounds like it's anticipating what punk did, and, and apparently they played a festival in 1974 which Polystyrene um, who was of course the lead singer in X-Ray Specs and she was from London but she um, she attended this music festival she saw Musical Vomit play and allegedly said that Musical Vomit were the first punk band ever um, you know and I'm, I'm not going to endorse that any more than I would endorse any. But, but I think I suppose it shows that this this musical project was another kind of what, what network analysts sometimes refer to as a focus or we refer to foci. And these are the times and places which draw people with similar kinds of interests together and allow them to form networks, which then allow them to engage in collective action of, of the kind that punk and post-punk involved. And I think that Meat Whistle was one of these foci. It was one of the places where all of these young people who were interested in in a range of creative arts, but probably particularly music, um, first came together and formed friendships that would later form the basis of what became the early Sheffield um, music world. Um, but uh, the other thing I did, you, you, you sort of talked about the um, similarities. I mean, I looked at the network for London. I looked at the networks for Liverpool, for Manchester and for Sheffield. And, and really, if we look at the structural properties of the network, they're all quite, quite similar. Um, now, to what extent that is because um, you need a particular type of network in order for music world to emerge, and to what extent it's just a, 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 an effect of the fact that when you're doing music, you will generate networks that look in a particular kind of way. Uh, I, yeah, who, who knows? Uh, but but it certainly it's it's an interesting. Um, I think it's an interesting uh, observation that these networks are all quite similar to one another and, and that does suggest that the, at least the network structure of, of music worlds is perhaps predictable in certain, in certain kinds
1: of, of ways. There's a lot more uh, I could ask you about the book. It, it's a really, really rich and, and really fascinating book. But um, just by way of conclusion, um, are you carrying on working around social network analysis of music, music worlds, or are you doing kind of completely different things for your, your future projects at the moment? Um, uh, I'm, I'm carrying on. I'm, I'm
0: continuing. So I, am. um, I, I have, I'm actually organizing a, a, um, a symposium here in Manchester on music and networks. to tell you about, uh, in, um, in, in June, uh, uh, which will bring people from internationally uh, r- really who are working in these areas and we 're going to have a big uh, symposium on music and networks and music worlds, and my own contribution to that has been uh to look uh, and actually I was still putting the network together just when you arrived uh, to look at two tone and the because uh two tone is is an interesting music world I think um, because it's, it's a highly significant post-punk strand and I felt when I finished the book the bigger mission was that I probably should have said something more about two Tone. so I'm atoning for my sins there or two toning for my sins there maybe um, but, but also it's interesting because it's much more ethnically diverse it's interesting because it's translocal um, in a way that I think the other music worlds that I've looked at perhaps well they are and I look at that in the book but, um, but, but two tone is somehow fundamentally translocal in a way that perhaps wasn't true for the other worlds that, that I looked at um, and it raises all kinds of interesting questions so yeah I'm, I'm carrying on two tone and also this symposium sounds like it needs another book two tone uh, watch this space who knows
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to new books in critical theory. In this episode, I was talking to Professor Nick Crossley from the University of Manchester about his new book, Networks of Sound, Style and Subversion.